0: 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're reading the whole chapter. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 16. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober minded, self controlled, respectable. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that. To you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these rich, glorious truths that we find in your word. Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would continue to soften our hearts at its hearing, and that it may yield abundant fruit in our lives and the lives of our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it's it 's sad that many people have had a negative experience of of church leadership and uh, there're the broadly two main expressions of church leadership that we, we we find in our context which perhaps contribute to this negative experience and the first is what we could call the the man of God syndrome and this setup is, is that the church is typically led by by one guy who makes all the decisions alone. He is seen to have a hotline to God independently of, of anyone else. Um, his word is the last word, and he's typically not accountable to, to anyone. And if we look around us, we see the fruit of that in a lot of churches in 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 our context, and it's a tendency towards tyranny, to all sorts of abuses in the church, whether it's spiritual abuse, um, you know, funny practices like the pastor making congregation eat rats and drink poison, thinking it's magic mooty, and just all sorts of things, sexual abuse as well, or he will use the church to to make himself extremely rich while his congregation is, is... pretty much living in, in poverty so there's that abuse this the, the other abuse is kind of the, the other extreme where um the approach to church leadership is something like well actually we all leaders you know, anyone can do anything there's typically not always but often there's there's no formal um structure they're there usually no elders or, or deacons and yeah, you know, it's an approach where kind of anyone can do anything if they feel led to do so. And so what you will find is there'll be all sorts of people involved in preaching and teaching ministries. Um, anyone doing the sacraments whenever and however they see fit. And um, with this, there's a tendency to all sorts of, of, of confusion and really bad teaching and often quite chaotic Churches now you know what all those all these things are, are not new okay? um, they've been around in the church for the past two thousand years. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new underneath the sun, and there were some of these issues that um, Timothy was dealing with in the church context where he was in, in Ephesus, and we've been seeing as we've been going through this letter, um, false teachers had infiltrated. Um, even amongst his leadership at the church in Ephesus. And so there was all sorts of weird practices going on, all sorts of confusion in the church. And so that's why Paul is writing this letter, to help Timothy navigate these these problems. And so in this morning's passage, what we see is that there actually is a biblical way in which churches should be led. Um, it's not left up to us to decide on our own um, good ideas, on our own... You know, adopting the latest corporate um, leadership structures. Uh, God has, has given it um, to us quite clearly in His Word. And so we see the biblical model for church leadership is, is neither, on the one hand, a, a one-man stand, nor is it, on the other hand, an absolute free-for-all. And so instead, Paul instructs Timothy that the church should be organized according to a plurality of elders and deacons. And then he, the bulk of this text is showing us, well, then who then is qualified to serve in these offices? And the ultimate point was here is that healthy church leadership can only emerge from being rooted in biblical truth. So let's dive straight in here. First point, the elders. I was trying to read from verse 1. Saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Oh, now, in uh, one Peter five verse four, tells us that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd over His church. Hey, John ten eleven, Jesus is our good shepherd. So, Jesus ultimately is the head of the church, is the elder of the church, and that. That wording is also used in, in 1 Peter. He's our shepherd. He's our pastor. But at the same time, Christ has entrusted his church to be ruled by undershepherds. A plurality of, of elders or, as it's translated here, overseers. It's, it's one and the same um, word in verse 1. And in 1 Timothy and in this verse, the Greek word that's used for elder is episkopoi. In okay, other places of the New Testament, that word is used as well, and as well, it's, uh, what is also used is uh, presbyteroi. So episkopoi presbyteroi, they mean the same thing, they're synonyms. So presbyteroi is where we get Presbyterian from. So we are Presbyterian church means we, we, one of our marks is that we, our leadership is based on a plurality of elders, and that's what it, it's getting to here. So the new, this is what we see when we look at the New Testament in terms of a pattern for church leadership, is a plurality of elders appointed, elected by the congregation and appointed by the elders to, to lead a church. Now, perhaps you, you, you're sitting here thinking, well, that's not quite what we see in, in our little church here in Covenant Waterfall yet. And you would be correct to make that assumption, okay? Our church is in a unique situation. Uh, It's been planted out of nothing. We didn't have a mother church to send a whole group from, which would have been the ideal and would have been amazing. Um, And at the moment, I'm the only ordained elder in in the church. And that's very much a temporary arrangement. We've been working towards a um, plurality of elders, and we still are. But in the meantime, we have a leadership team in place. So it's not just me making the... Decisions. Um, and also, our church doesn't just exist in isolation. We are part of, of a presbytery. In other words, um, we connected to other churches. Um, it's a higher presbytery is a higher court of, of the church, which is formed of um, other elders which represent other churches in our denomination. And so there's accountability baked into the system. And that's certainly what we see in the New Testament. Like Acts 15 is an example of a, a presbytery in action, Rep, elders representing all the churches of the region coming together to decide on, um, to sort out issues of church discipline and um, doctrine and, you know, making sure that the, the church is, is being governed properly. Now, we saw earlier in 1 Timothy 1, if you haven't listened to the the earlier sermons they are available on our podcast. I'd encourage you to, to go and listen to them so you can catch up. Um, we it starts off in chapter one with Paul, well, looking at Paul's uh, apostolic credentials, and we saw there that the offices of the apostle and, and prophet were extraordinary offices, meaning that they've they've served their purpose in the early church by laying the foundation of the church. That's what Ephesians 2.20 verse uh, says. And what's the nature of that foundation? Well, it's that they were specially appointed by God to receive special revelation. And that special revelation we have now in form of the the New Testament and Old Testament canon, if you count the prophets, Old Testament (laughs) prophets too. And so because they've fulfilled their purpose, and because even Paul said he was the last apostle, and because the, the requirement for being an apostle is that you had to witness the resurrection of Christ, it means that the office of apostle no longer exists. So the church is no longer led by apostles and prophets. Okay? Um, we are an apostolic church, as the, the creeds tell us because we believe in the apostolic gospel, the gospel that was passed down to us by the apostles, but we do not have modern-day apostles. Instead, the church is now led by ordinary office, the ordinary office of the elder and the pastor. And this transition is even evident within the New Testament canon. Paul, you know, was an apostle. And one of his successes was Timothy. Now, you would expect if the apostolic line continued that Timothy would be an apostle too. Well, he wasn't. He was a pastor. He was an elder. So a pastor is one among many elders in a church. He has the same authority as other elders um, to lead the church together in, in a team. And the function of the elders is primarily the the ministry of the word and sacrament, as we're going to enjoy later. Um, It's also leadership, um, exercising authority in the church, uh, the pastoral care, the members of the church, and a part of pastoral care includes church discipline. So to call out... um, Christians, when they are in sin and and bring discipline upon them as we see practiced in, in the New Testament. Now, verse 1, which you just read, calls the function of an elder a noble task. And the Greek literally is a, is a good work. But not all are called to this office, as not all are biblically qualified to lead God's church. It's only those who, Meet biblical criteria should be considered for eldership. so what are these criteria well that's what we're going to look at in the bulk of the sermon and it's impo- why are we looking at this is because as members as people who are part of the church, you guys need to know this because it's the members of the church who elect the elders. you guys need to be able to recognize these qualities in potential Elders, and the thing is a part of why a lot of these leadership problems arise in churches is that typically they they have elders which have not met biblical criteria That's half the problem they want to just put in a the successful businessman in the congregation, um, somebody with kind of recognize some worldly leadership attributes, a strong man, and you know, he must be an elder with with you know, ignoring all these biblical um, requirements. So let's dive in and see what the Bible instructs us here. So let me read from verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or you may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Yeah, so first thing that is important here is that an elder or potential elder needs to be above reproach, verse 2 says. In other words, he must be a man of integrity. Someone who is blameless. Okay, not sinless there's only one sinless man, and that's that's Jesus, but rather someone who's free from accusation, free from scandal, someone who has an observed track record of godly living, someone who's who's consistent in living a life of integrity and faithful obedience to to god 's word and I mean well, the nature of integrity is that there shouldn't be any obvious contradictions between his professed beliefs and his behaviour, and so evidence of personal holiness needs to be in his life, and uh, that personal holiness then overflowing into how he would treat other people, and this is exactly what's elaborated on in verse two, where it says that he must be the husband of one wife. Now, this criterion doesn't exclude single men. Okay, Paul and Barnabas were unmarried. You see, Jesus was unmarried. But the point is here is that elders need to be sexually pure. If he is married, he must be faithful to his wife. It naturally excludes polygamists, excludes those who have committed adultery, who have defiled the marriage bed. Um, but if he is a single, he must be celibate, either for the rest of his life or until he gets married. So why is sexual purity a requirement for eldership? Well, the obvious first answer is, well, sexual immorality is sinful. But also, what it reveals, it reveals something about a person's character. And if there's a pattern of of a lack of, of, of sexual restraint, it's usually evidence of a lack of sound Judgment. It shows that you've been driven by your base passions and unable to, to control yourself. The thing is, if you, if you let someone like this loose in, in eldership, it has the potential to, to wreck a church. And so this is why sexual purity is, is a requirement for elders. And instead, as elders ought to be, as verse 2 carries on to say, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable. And this is the exact opposite of someone who's unable to control their passions. The second thing that the Bible instructs us regarding elders is that elders are to be hospitable, verse 2 as well. So elders need to display a love for God's people. Um, care for them, pray for them, welcome them into their homes, be, be generous with them, spend time with them. And this is one of the uh, important tasks of eldership, um, is to care for God's church, as, as verse 5 or so tells us. The third thing, elders are to be able to teach, also verse 2. So the gift of, of teaching is, is a necessary gift for elders, because one of the, the most important functions of an elder, particularly the pastor, is to instruct God's people every Lord's day in God's word. He's got to faithfully preach the gospel as a minister of the word and sacrament. And it's for this reason that they they need to be doctrinally sound. He must have done rigorous theological studies, um, proved himself in in holding to the rule of faith, which is um, another way of describing historical biblical orthodoxy, what the church has historically believed as true. And in, in a Presbyterian context like ours, we believe the rule of faith for us is, is summed up in our creeds, in our confessions. The Westminster Confession of Faith is, is, is our rule of faith. It's a faithful expression of what the Bible teaches. It's not something over and above what the Bible teaches. It's just summarizing what's what's already in here. The other Reformed Confessions, the, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, etc. Etc. The point is that a pastor can't just teach anything. I can't, I'm not authorized as a minister of the Word of God to teach you my own ideas, to teach you and expound the dream that I had last night or a vision that I had. If I ever do that, bring charges against me and kick me out of this church. That's the power that you guys have as members of the congregation. Because I would then have broken my ordination vows. I have taken a vow to teach the word of God and be faithful to the teaching of, of, of the gospel. To teach, Jude 3 says, the faith once delivered to the saints. And this is exactly why Titus 1 verse 9 says of an elder, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So, that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, elders must be grounded in solid theology so that they may, may be able to teach God's word faithfully and refute heresies. And this is the job of, of a good shepherd, right? Okay, a shepherd. His first job is to fend off the wolves. So he's got to fend off the heretics in the church, from the church. And the other job of the shepherd is he's got to feed his sheep. And how you faithfully feed your sheep is faithfully teach them the word of God so that the church is is built up, encouraged, and grown up in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, two weeks ago, we were in... Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, the very politically incorrect passage, okay? If you haven't listened to it, go and have a listen. And these, chapter 2 and chapter 3, are directly related in that we saw in chapter 2 verse 12 that uh, the Word of God forbids women to teach or exercise authority over men. Um, They can express teaching gifts in in other contexts, other women and, and children, but not at a church service. And so, because it's only elders or and elders in training who are called to teach and preach and exercise authority in the church, what this means then is that eldership is restricted to biblically qualified men. I'm saying it's biblically qualified men, not all men qualify for eldership. So it's not really a male and female thing. It's it's those of um, who whose God, God's word qualifies for. Uh, for for eldership, and that's not all men; it's, it's only biblically qualified men. So the the fourth point, carrying on, is elders are not to be harsh. And verse three says, elders are not to to be drunkards, um, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So elders are not to have harsh characters, um, not you know, not to be people who like to stir up controversy, who relish in drama and relish in creating dissension. Instead, there to be people who display Christ-like character, um, gracious in how they conduct themselves, and self-controlled and measured in all things. Uh, fifthly, they're not to be uh, lovers of money. In verse three, it is an, an elder should have a, a healthy relationship with money. It shouldn't idolize it. Um, Jesus in Matthew six twenty four says, No one can, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And that, this is also an issue in, in, in our context, text, that there's often a, a motive that people go into ministry is, is to make money. And to get rich, and it's rooted in this prosperity gospel teaching that is is, is very common in, in in our area. Instead, elders should be content with what they have from the Lord and trust the Lord to provide them in their needs. Sixthly, um, elders are to manage their own household well. So, verses four and five. And so, elders should have, have well ordered lives. Got their finances in order, healthy family life and marriage, if they're married, um, have the, their house in order. Okay, and that must mean literally, yeah, you know, if you're living in a pigsty, star, <laughs> there's a problem. How do you expect to be entrusted to, to manage God's church if your own house is is in a mess? These these things are, are related. And then lastly, number seven. Elders should not be a recent convert, so from verse 6. So, Ellis shouldn't be young in their faith. Um, they've got to have an established track record in, in walking faithfully with the Lord for some time. And that track record should even be vouched for by outsiders, as the next verse tells us. Even unbelievers should say, yeah, I can vouch for him. He, he, he's living an upright life in, in the community, so, essentially, we shouldn't rush people into eldership. Um, allow them to be tested first. And that's what you know, it says of the deacons later. Um, first, see evidence of godly life demonstrated in, in character and in, in doctrine. And as we push people into eldership too soon, if they're too young in their faith, you know, there's a possibility, a big possibility that you set them up for failure. And they fall into disgrace. And in verse 7, into the snare of the devil. So bring us to the second point now from verse 8 where um, Paul shifts from looking at elders to to deacons. And so verse 8 and 9 says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So you see here the the second office in the church is the the office of, of deacon. The Greek word for deacon is diakonai, deacons is diakonai, and diakonai just means, on the one hand, just means someone who serves, a servant, or it can also refer to the the office of of deacon. And we see here that deacons are distinguished from elders in that they do not have the responsibility to teach or exercise any leadership authority over God's church like the elders are, are called to do. So what do deacons do? Well, like their name suggests, the deacons are to serve the church. And the office of deacon was established in Acts in chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And there we see that they're um, established with the purpose to serve the widows in the church to, to look after their, their physical needs in order that the apostles and the elders of the church could devote themselves to, to prayer and the ministry of the word. So from that, we see that deacons have the responsibility to care for the, the practical needs of the church. And how that's been performed traditionally in, in many churches is that deacons have had the responsibility to care for the poor, in the church, be involved in mercy ministries, uh, organize meals for the sick and the burdened, um, perform the various administrative tasks in the church, the church finances, or looking after the, the property. I like with elders, not everyone is called to be a deacon. Okay, there's, we're given biblical criteria here in, in these verses, and the criteria are actually very similar to that of, of elder. Um, calls for a life of integrity, godly character, and sound doctrine. Again, verse 9, they, you know, they need to hold to the mystery of, of faith and also have their household in order. The only thing that's missing in the, the biblical requirements for deacon compared to elders is that they don't need to have teaching gifts and they don't need to have pastoral and leadership gifts because those things are not the responsibility of, of the deacons. So, some may ask, can women be deacons? Well, verse 11 says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, in Greek, you can translate the word for woman, which is kunaikas, as w- either women or wives. Okay? It can mean both. The other thing with this verse is that in the ESV, it's got their wives. Now, in the Greek, that there is not there. <laughs> it is not present. It says wives or um, women. And so some, therefore, have seen um, ambiguity in this text. So you could translate it either way. You could translate as the ESV does, which is communicating something to the effect of that deacon's wives must be dignified. Etc., etc. And that translation would probably fit better with the overall context because the next verse talks about deacons being the husband of, of one wife. Um, we look at Acts 6, yeah, the first deacons that were called there, well, although they were all men, makes a text makes a point of, of saying that. So there is biblical support for male only deacons. But on the other hand, what we see is that that verse could also be translated like this those women who are deacons must be dignified, etc., etc. And if we look at plays like Romans 16, verse 1, it tells us that Phoebe was a diaconos. So you could translate it the, of the church of Kencre. So you could translate that either as Phoebe was a a servant in the church of King Cray or you could say if Phoebe was a deacon in the church of of King Cray, which would lead to some arguing for women deacons. Now I would lean towards male only office bearers, yet women being able to serve in diaconal teams and performing the functions of deacons. I mean, our denomination actually does allow for, for women deacons. Um, John Calvin, of all people, argued for women deacons too. Um, and the thing is, the nature of the office, we must understand, is very different to that of eldership. And there's a very good reason why you know, the Bible has a male-only eldership. Because of it's a teaching office and its authority is exercised in in that office, but that is not the case with the office of deacon. Deacons do not exercise authority. They do not rule. They do not teach. So really, there's no reason why a woman should should not be involved in in deacons' ministry. And indeed, here in our church, some of you already are, whether you calling yourself a deacon or not. I mean, whether it's making a meal for someone in the church, that that's an expression of it of a, of deacons ministry one day we will be we will organize ourselves with deacons as well as as uh, our church gets more established well, let's bring us to our final point the mystery of godliness now paul concludes this passage by telling us the reason why he is writing these things in verse 14 so what things is he referring to well, it's what we've been hearing, instructions on how to order church leadership. Well, what is his reason? Well, verse fifteen says that so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what's the reason for him writing these things? Well, that we may behave properly in the church. That we may enjoy a healthy church life and, and um, biblical expression of, of church leadership rooted in, in God's truth. And the church is the one place on earth where God's truth, or the gospel, is proclaimed. In fact, one of the, the marks of the true church is that the gospel is faithfully preached. And this is what Paul calls here the mystery of Godliness. And what is the nature of this mystery that has been entrusted to the church? Is it based on some subjective feelings, some hidden revelation that one can discern through, through new prophetic gifts, through dreams and visions? No. It's rooted in the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. And that's exactly what he Lifts up here in this glorious verse 16. is: He was manifested in the flesh. Okay? In other words, the eternal word of God became flesh. God's son, born of a woman in the fullness of time. Truly God, truly man, who lived the obedient life. None of us could live. who died a death that we deserved for sins on the cross. The truth of the incarnation and um, the... Jesus' atonement on the cross, and it carries on. Jesus, He was vindicated by the Spirit. Hey, This is language that's echoed in places like 1 Peter 5, and so Romans 8 verse 1, that's talking about Christ's resurrection. He was raised from the dead on the third day. He was sinless, conquering the power of, of sin and death, forgiving our sins, promising us eternal life for those who, who believe in him. And then he was seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Saying that his res- Jesus' resurrection was not mythology, it was a historical event. It was witnessed by many. 1 Corinthians 15 says, at one time, 500 people at one day saw the resurrected Christ. And it, his resurrection was proclaimed by his disciples among the nations, the church was established in the world and where many have believed his, this truth. And then finally, Jesus was taken up in glory. He's describing the ascension of Jesus into heaven, that he ascended on the clouds of glory, where now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling on all power and majesty and strength and one day he will return to this earth in the same way that he went up. So bringing this all to a close. Perhaps it can be easy to get disillusioned with, with bad church leadership and, and bad practices in the church. Maybe you've been hurt or disappointed in in, in uh, your experience of church. But you know what? The, the reality is that We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And as Isaiah 53 verse 6 that we all like sheep have gone astray. And what that means is that we we all deserve God's justice for sins outside of Christ. But thankfully our good shepherd has laid down his life for us. This Jesus, who has a beautiful text tells us, Became flesh, was raised by the Holy Spirit, was seen by the angels, was proclaimed among the nations, and was taken up in glory. Brothers and sisters, receive this Jesus, who has entrusted his church to elders to teach and lead his people faithfully, who has entrusted his church also to deacons to serve his church. Receive this Jesus who gives us true rest satisfies our souls, who forgives our sins, who counts us as righteous before the Lord, who delivers us from evil and and temptation, and who will preserve us for eternal life with him. He, our God, and we, the sheep of his pasture. Amen. Let's pray.